Well, I'm breaking with protocol and releasing a whole story in one day. Why on earth would I do that? Well, the episode I was commentating upon was released on this day, 56 years ago exactly, so I couldn't resist the chance to tie that in, especially as today, January the 2nd, is also my birthday. So it's my gift, if you like, to you. Now, of course, if you're not listening to this on its release date, well, this means nothing and ignore all of that. But now you won't forget my birthday next year, will you? Anyway, on with the show. Welcome to Happy Times and Places, in which I, Toby Haydoke, endeavour to accentuate the positive about a Doctor Who story chosen by a friend of mine. Hello, lovely Toby Haydoke. It's Andrew Allard here. Since I'm not an actor who played a small role in Doctor Who, you probably need reminding who I am. I'm a TV script editor. I worked on Detectorist, Chewing Gum, Red Dwarf, Miranda, and I've written a few things. Horror movie After Death, Channel 4 Black series Outsiders, and I've got a sci-fi sitcom coming to Children's BBC in 2021. But you don't want to know about that. You want to know what story I've nominated for you to watch, and it's The Rescue. So, that's William Hartnell's second season and the arrival of Vicky aboard the TARDIS. I picked two favourite things about each of the two episodes and one overall thing that I love about it. Can the fandom detective of old Commentary Street deduce what they are? If people want to find me, I'm Andrew Ellard. My website's andrewellard.com. My Twitter is ellardent. That's L-R-D-E-N-T. Hello, everybody. It's... The middle of the night, and I'm doing my first William Hartnell story for Happy Times and Places. You know what it is, because it said that in the title, and if you are about to watch the episode, uh, you've got it all lined up, so press play now. Oh, I love this title sequence. It's nice to be doing a William Hartnell Number of things to discuss immediately. I'm in a really slightly discombobulated mood because I, I, I found the Rescue of the Romans double pack on the shelf and it was shrink-wrapped. And I remembered, oh yes, I've got a shrink-wrapped copy because I kept one unopened because it was the first, this was the first DVD I did a commentary on. This is my first Doc 2 commentary. Uh, and I thought, well, I must have, and that, but that was on my shelf, my main shelf downstairs. So I thought, well, I must have given the other one away because you know i don't need two copies and probably thought i'd never watch it for for ages um so it didn't matter that you know the shrink so i kept the shrink wrapped one uh so i opened it up to to use to watch now virgin a virgin shrink wrappage and then i remembered oh no i i do keep some spares upstairs so i went upstairs and there was an unshrink shrink wrapped one there so what 15 14 15 years that's been shrink wrapped untouched perfectly preserved and now i've just rather carelessly opened it and and in fact i was so annoyed that's not the one we're watching i immediately put it back and put it upstairs but it's not shrink wrapped anymore so um my collector i'm not much of a collector feels sick inside that i didn't just check upstairs and and i've undone all that preservation um because like i'm, I'm sure there's a real shortage of copies of anyway Anyway, so hello. I'm. I. I. I also. This is also different because, uh, out of shot and out of earshot, uh, my my other half is watching. We're saying because, um, 
I would have quite liked her to have interrupted or, or knocked on halfway through so I could have gone, you can't come in, uh, which will will become a, a favourite pastime of watching this. Uh, and the other reason, apart from this being my first DVD commentary, uh, is that this episode, episode one of The Rescue, The Powerful Enemy, is one of the few episodes of Doctor Who to have been transmitted on January the 2nd, which is my birthday, which... Uh, I know from bitter experience is the worst day in the universe because everyone's asleep or hungover or sleeping off their hangover uh, or or sleeping off their delayed hangover because they've got through New Year's Day and have really taken the next. So you look in your diary, it'll say January the 1st, New Year's Day, January the 3rd, back to work. In the middle, there's a big black hole of nothing and certainly no social engagements or birthday parties. So our solidarity with the the rescue <laughs> although it was a, it was really highly rated um it got really good viewing figures so obviously everyone was hung over and staying in i love vicky's costume so this, this is maureen o'brien it's vicky uh who i used to be quite cross with because she didn't do many interviews about doctor who, and when she did she came across as really dismissive um having met her she's the loveliest woman in the world and actually, now that I've spoken to her, I can see where a sentence where she might say something like, well, I'm only doing this interview to plug my book, may sound sort of, may read as brusque when written down. But actually, when you hear it come from her, it's, she's not being remotely dismissive of Doctor Who. It's just her, it's just her sort of bluntness, which is in no way disparaging. So it was really interesting to to encounter the person and to hear her say the things that I'd, the sort of things I'd seen her say written written down that had made me think, oh, she doesn't like Doctor Who. She's, she, she's fine about Doctor Who. She's had a fantastic career. So in the 80s, when we were sort of, you know, wanting to read interviews with companions and people, she was busy doing high-quality work. So um, probably didn't have an awful lot of time, or indeed inclination, which is fair enough. I met her at the 50th anniversary uh, thing, and I, and I needed to interview somebody from the rescue. And as we will see, there's not much of a cast or crew. Uh, and those that there are, I'd already spoken to in the commentary. Um, and I think it was, was it Marcus Hearn? It was somebody who said, oh, why don't you speak to Maureen O'Brien? I went, but she hates doing interviews about Doctor Who. She's not going to say yes. And she said yes, and she was great. And then we shared a taxi, and I emailed her the other day. Uh, we're still in touch, and she's really nice. Uh, living in France and doing a garden. Uh very smart woman, very nice woman. So, oh, poor old William Hartnell is very sad that Susan... So this is the first breakup of the TARDIS crew because Susan left last week. Uh, oh, and he's and he's going to ask Susan to do something, isn't he? And she's not going to be there, and he's going to be sad. I might just turn the sound up slightly. Oh, uh, oh, the trembling stopped. I'm so glad you're feeling better. That's a great gag. Ha, 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 ha. She's non-alcoholic, by the way. I'm having a late-night beer and watching Doctor Who because I love Doctor Who. I don't know about you. And I do love black and white Doctor Who. Um, I'm interested. And what's also nice about this, because this is not a story of great heft, let's be honest, it's a man pretending to to be locked in a cupboard uh, to, to, for some reason, string a young woman along. Uh, and in fact, I remember in the book Doctor Who, the early years, which, ah, oh, that was like 
the Dead Sea Scrolls because my mum had bought it because I'd seen it in the Longleat shop and I'd got and it got pictures of old Doctor Who and I went oh gosh if money and there was no object I'd love that and my mum obviously had then gone back to the shop because she bought a load of stuff that she then put in a cupboard in one of the rooms in our house ready for Christmas and I found it so I would occasionally sneak in there and have a look now I didn't read the whole book because I knew that I wanted something to be there for Christmas. Oh, I love that bit where he speaks for Susan and she's not there and he looks so, so, look at him. He's heartbroken. And there's a sort of stillness there. He was a good screen actor, Hartnell. Oh, yes. There's a real vulnerability about him there. And I love the way these two are with him. The dynamic between these three is is a thing of beauty. Look at them. Aren't they? Don't you just love them? Don't you want to be with them? I think this T TARDIS crew is absolutely... And I love this cave and the darkness. Uh, yeah, the lighting in here is fantastic with the TARDIS flashing. So it's... it's and it is the, the inky blackness of that cave set. is terrific. And, the, and yeah, and the flashing light is... I haven't seen this for so long. Um, and it's an odd dynamic. This obviously, I always say this a lot. because I, I, Oh, hang on. You can see the back of the cave through the back of the TARDIS look so the TARDIS prop hasn't got its back on that's a special dimensional trick where the comedian circuit has blended the insides of the TARDIS with the cave see you can explain anything you like with sci-fi um, so yeah the Doctor Who the early years and I remember there was a picture from the rescue and it said something like <laughs> you've been quite rude that was that was a sort of Trump Donald Trump hand gesture that. Um when he's being rude about somebody. Um yeah, Ian. Although I approve of the pocket square, I always approve of someone with a pocket square. Um Yeah, and there was a picture in Do Doctor what she's doing now, Ian, Susan, because she's uh you left her many years in the past. What she's doing now is being dead. That's the sad thing about time travel. You you leave somebody and you travel forward a few hundred years and the person, the person you've left behind... Oh! Cochillion. I love that mask. And that... Cause that and it photographs really well because there were loads of photographs of it in the early years book. And it's... Uh, I think it's a pretty pretty neat costume. It, it, it wobbles a bit in a way that it doesn't with the, with the still pictures. So those um, those antennae are a little bit, they detract a little bit, whereas the still pictures, it looks it looks incredible. It was it was one of those pictures where it said the rescue was the story the original none of the original cast wanted to do or something. I can't remember why. Um, that's very good, isn't it? Two bit with the with the spaceship in the back it's, it's the trick they use with the Dalek city and the Daleks as well. Of course, yes, this is this is called the rescue, but there's an episode of the Daleks called the Rescue. It's very confusing. Um you'd have you'd have thought within the first year they'd managed not to replicate titles. Um Uh so yes, so the uh, yeah, the early years made an allusion to the fact that the cast didn't originally want to do this script not quite and I'm sure it explains but I remember that and I don't remember the the details apart from obviously there is there is a certain certain subtext 
of going, why why is Bennett kept Vicky alive and what exactly does he want to do? Uh, and that mask survived. There's a, there's a brilliant publication called Nothing at the End of the Lane, uh, published by Richard Bignall, who is the great Doctor Who researcher. Uh, and he's always very good at sharing his his knowledge and his spoils. He's a very he's like an oracle of Arcana, and um, there's some photos of what's left of that mask um, because it was rescued by Zine Andu. Then who then I think hired it out uh, and and changed it for fancy dress and things like that. So you got this, this great relic of Doctor Who, and it had lost a few. I think you can see the the antenna aren't long for this world anyway. Um, but nobody knows where it is now. But it survived then, and there are, you know, relatively recent photographs. Although I think it's since gone missing. Some of probably a fan who isn't like Richard bought it and has kept it in a cupboard and gone. I'm the only one who's got this next to my shrink wrapped copy of the Rescue in the Romans DVD that I've kept in my shrink wrap because I know how to look after things. Oh, I'm never going to forgive myself for that. I did just before I started though. I did just talk on. Yeah, I, I could buy one for twelve ninety nine. So. Um, but it's just the fact. Oh, yeah! I remember when I first watched this. Barbara falls off a cliff. That—that is—that's a great shot. Look at that. You forget how close they go up, go in in black and white sometimes. Uh, and with with the restored, you know, with, with the restored picture, because obviously when I would first actually when I first saw this, it was in decent quality. I was very lucky with some of the the bootlegs I got, and I remember the rescue being being actually particularly good quality. The Aztecs was a mess, and the invasion was a veritable mixture of textures, but this was all right. I like his... Now, as regular viewers will know, I do like a bit of neckwear, but I've never worn anything like that. I wonder what you call it. It's not a cravat, is it? It's a... Do you know what that's called? A ribbon. A neck ribbon. You don't see those nowadays. Uh... Coquillian, that's a good name, isn't it? And Coquillian, now I sometimes don't mention things that I think are obvious. However, Coquillian is credited as Sidney Wilson, which is a mixture of the names of Sidney Newman and Donald Wilson, who essentially created Doctor Who. Yeah, look, the TARDIS hasn't got a back. Um, and of course, well, I don't want to spoil it for my other half who's never seen it, but uh, Sidney Wilson is not a real person because the actor playing Coquillian is also playing another character in this episode. Uh, oh, and the list of suspects is huge. Now, with, this is what's going to be interesting. I don't know why Andrew Ellard, who that's the beautiful thing about Doctor Who, I'm a great admirer of the work of Andrew Ellard, who has nominated The Rescue, and he's given me two reasons. He's very I didn't ask him to, and it's, but, but because it's... It's only a two-part. He's giving me two reasons per episode and a bonus reason. So five in total, like I would get for a Russell T. Davis or Modern Who episode, which is exactly what I uh, would have hoped for, even though I didn't suggest it to him. So he's a smart guy. But the beautiful thing is, and I love his tweet notes that he does on Doctor Who episodes and films and stuff, but I've never actually met him, and I don't know him. Um, but I just sent him a message and said, will you do this silly podcast thing of mine? And he's responded uh, fascinatingly, uh, and um, but I will be interested to see what what he chooses and why he, as a, a great man of scripts, has chosen this story, which is very much an introduction 
to a companion and not an awful lot else um i would i i think of it as, although people do like it i think people like it because it's short because i think a six-part black and white is quite a is quite a big ask for today's audience whereas this is the length of a this whole story is the length of a is the length it takes to do a modern story um But yeah, I I would be interested. I'm sure he will choose. Oh, I should have got a pen and a thing. I will have to remember what my favourite things are. Definitely, I'm think I'm going to choose the bit where he calls for Susan and she's not there and he's really sad. Um, and I suspect I would be surprised if Andrew didn't choose that. Uh, he's not going to choose the fact that it was broadcast on my birthday. Although I hadn't been born then, by the way. There were quite a few January the 2nds to come before the one where I was sent mewling and puking into this world. Ah, oh, I love I love William Russell. I love William Hartnell too. There's something really comfortable about, uh, about this TARDIS crew. I really like being with them. Oh, and I really like... I'll tell you what I really like. I like the fact that they've gone to the effort of putting the set on an angle because obviously, as we saw in the model shot, the spaceship is broken into three and, and on the uh, on the uh, on the rocks like that. But you can and that's how they've done it with the set and not with I don't think with tricky angles. I think they've actually they've gimbled it up or they've 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 yeah, they've built it on an angle and that it sells it. It's brilliant. And she's so good too and i love her costume i love her uh her neck thing round her round her round her neck neck things go around the neck i know yeah neck things neck strings oh, oh he's so mean to her she's great isn't she um but I, yeah, he's, um, I mean, he's not trying to be nice, I have to say. You know, he's telling, telling them he's, telling her, he's, he's protect, he's, yeah, she was, and she was originally, she wasn't going to be called Vicky, was she? She was going to be called Tanny or Lucky, and I have I was have a script for the Space Museum, which is a later story where she is actually written as Tanny. Uh, I think Vicky slightly dates better. So Kukulian has gone to talk to Bennett. Did you say you can't come in? Yes. That's what that's what I wanted to do to you, other half out of shot. I wanted you to come and get something from the fridge. Me go, you can't come in, because uh, he, he he does it quite a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, she's hiding Barbara. Uh, Barbara's hair in this is amazing. I mean, I assume that takes some doing to make to make your hair like that. But it's that's quite a lot of it. Yeah, for hair, I want I want to know how you make your hair like that in the sixties. Yeah, well that's true. She has, uh, yeah. Back combing. 
backcombing. Mm. There's the tip there. So if you want your, if you want to do a Babs original, backcomb your hair. But you need a lot of hair. But but she looked a right state in the morning. It was interesting that they, you know, they pretty much they they replaced Susan with somebody who's sort of the same age and Susan's slightly weirder, I think, and I don't mean that pejoratively. I like it when Susan's weird. She's got a really uh, sort of big-eyed, sad, innocent quality, hasn't she? Yeah, I wonder if this was her audition piece. It's a nice bit. But yeah, this was this was this was the first one I did a commentary on, and it's with Ray Cusick, Chris Bar Christopher Barry, the director, and William Russell. Uh, and it was also just by coincidence. It was the night that my one-man show, Moth's Sake, my Doctor Who scarf opened at the West End uh, so I had to get a train at 5am I think to get to London in time to do the commentary during the day and then I made my West End debut in the evening and then when I got back to my I was going to say hotel it was a travel lodge in which my director Mark because they couldn't afford to put him up as well shared my bed and we had a few drinks and we were just going to sleep. And then Chortle announced the Sony nominations and Moth Saint My Doctor Who Scarf, the radio version, got nominated for a Sony Award. So that was quite a, it was an April day, 6th, 9th, something like that. Um, it was an April day and all those three things happened. And... <laughs> I think life has plummeted ever since. I don't think it. Don't think I've ever quite had a triumvirate of of uh, of firsts or successes or or joys. So uh, that's another reason for me to be very fond of the rescue. But I I think it's. I think I mean I can't I can't really say that you know just the 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 dynamic of the crew this 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 bunch I suppose because you I sort of take we take that for granted because they're. They like it in ev they like it in everyone. It's not typical to this. And I, they, these two have got a great a great dynamic. And these two have a great dynamic. Oh, she's she's so lovely, Vicky. Yeah, and it was uh, it was amazing having had that early years book and to have read those names, you know, having stolen them from the cupboard, uh, to then be in a room at uh, Television Centre with where it had been. Where how was this made at Television Centre? No, this was made at Riverside, wasn't it? I don't know, can't remember. Riverside, I would guess. No. I might tell you in episode two because that's niggling me. Um, there's a there's a 
there's a, there's a photo of that. We've got we've got lots of lovely black and white photos from these days, and the, those f- design photos that Ray Cusick gave to the early years book. And the early years book w- I'd taken with me to get signed. Where's Coquillian gone, Bennett? He's trying to get things out of it. I didn't get it. Has he gone? Has he gone through a different door? Or yes, yes, he has been it, and you know that, don't you? Uh, and Ray Barrett, of course, was no slouch uh, in terms of a guest star, but he was not Christopher Barry's first choice. Christopher Barry offered the part of Bennett. He's got a good face, hasn't he? To um. Uh, he, had, he had very pop. He got a very pockmarked face, Ray Barrett, um, which he was very sort of open about, saying it actually helped him get parts because he was had a sort of lived in, lived in look, um, which is of course from you know teenage acne and stuff. I know as a, as a psoriasis patient that uh, the skin can be a pernicious beast, but actually having a, a lived in face is quite good as a character actor. Ray Barrett got loads of work, good actor, but no, it was offered. The part was offered to Bernard Archard. Uh, who was obviously a favourite of Christopher Barry because then he did agree to be in Doctor Who for Christopher Barry in Power of the Daleks, in which he plays the villain Bregan uh, and then comes back in Pyramids of Mars, not for Christopher Barry, but for Paddy Russell. Um, but yes, he was offered the part because he was, I guess he was doing Spy Catcher at the time, so he was a big name, uh, but turned it down. Not Just didn't fancy. Because those days where as an actor you could get offered a guest lead in a TV series and just go... Yeah, no, I don't fancy it. Because <laughs> I'm sure he didn't say I'm busy. And he didn't even soft serve and go, oh, no, I'm doing something. He just went, no, you're all right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, having read, having read the, the names in the, in the book, and I'd got, I'd got my early years book with me to get signed at the commentary because I... I I'm so unprofessional. I'm not letting my I'm not letting my ten year old self down. I don't care. Um, and uh, and so it ended up being a prop uh, on the set of my West End show because I'd got I decorated it with some of my you know personal Doctor Who ephemera. And what was very beautiful is that Jeremy Bentham, who I found this out years later, who wrote Doctor Who the early years, had come to see it at the West End. A group of them had come. Of the sort of you know the 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 the, the, the founding fans of yesteryear whose names were you know enshrined in all of those first texts, um, uh, and he'd been quite chuffed to see that his book was on on my sofa on my set and quite right too it was a it, it, as I say it was like an an ancient screed full of magic. Uh, I like Sandy the Sand Beast. I think that's a good design and this is great. Perils of Pauline stuff. Is it a good design? Well, I like. I'm, actually, I'm, I'm regretting saying that because it didn't look great there. But no, I, I no. Sandy the Sand Beast is fine. So, uh, Coquillian Sydney Wilson. Uh, don't go looking for Sydney Wilson. He doesn't exist. Um, so uh, that was jolly. Uh, what will Andrew Ellard have chosen? Because that was rather a personal odyssey. I'm sorry about that. It's going to be that sometimes. Um, uh, uh, but just because there's various different things in that story that chime for me. However, so the two things I'm going for, I'm going for William, Hutt, the Doctor, 
calling for Susan, realising she's not there and looking desperately sad at Ian and Barbara being lovely to him. Uh, and I think I'll go for the design of Coquillian's mask, which I think is really spiky and scary. And it's a good, it's a good, it's a good design. It does the job. Uh, striking. Um, yeah, I did that. Honourable mentions to the darkness of the cave set, uh, the general dynamic between Ian and Barbara and the Doctor, uh, Vicky, of course, the spaceship being like that. There's loads, isn't there? Even in 25 minutes. Let's see what Andrew Ellard has chosen. And I think the rules are, I keep forgetting what the rules are, I think I'm trying to guess what he's guessed. And if I do, I become king and you have to bow down before me. And if I don't, you have to feel very sorry for me and buy me a coffee. <laughs> there we are. Right. I like those rules. Can we remember those, please? Um, those are now the rules because I don't think they've always been the rules, but I've decided I like those. Right. Andrew Ellard. And he's even done it. You could tell he's an episode professional. He's a television professional. He's put episode one thing one. Good for him. One favourite thing in episode one is the mystery, and specifically the moment early on where Kakillian appears next to the TARDIS. It's a wonderfully directed moment. We hard cut to the monstrous face and pull back like we're trying to escape. But what's especially clever is that in retrospect you realise he's here because Vicky told Bennett a ship had arrived. At the time you don't get that. We don't even know there's a mystery to solve, in fact. But later, it adds up very neatly. Oh, he's... He's clever, isn't he? This is like when Simon Guerrier did it and he picked out all sorts of clever, thready things. Whereas I just go, I like that, what that looks like. Or I like that actor when he did that thing. Uh, Andrew's, of course, a script editor, so he's going to go, I'm going to piece all these magical things together and be clever and explain why I work in television regularly. OK. But, you know, always judge a man by the quality of the guests of his podcast, is what I say. So, um, and I said that whilst looking away from the microphone, which is what records the podcast, looking in the camera, which records the video bit. Yes. A real favourite thing about this story for me is the emotional capability of it all. Where a lot of the early shows felt overly functional, this never forgets to connect events to emotions and character perspectives. What everyone thinks and feels. Everyone has an inner emotional life. We get the Doctor asking for Susan in the TARDIS and catching himself, remembering she's gone. It's an old trick, but it's wonderfully acted. We get him calling from inside the TARDIS. Remember, I can hear what you're saying. He lies to Ian and Barbara that he's going for a nap, when in fact he's checking his own faulty memory to see if this is indeed the planet Dido. He keeps up his bravado in the caves, pretending it was Ian who needed a rest, not him. And we get Barbara trying to stop Ian from saying, there's one more person in the ship, but too late. Again, perfectly act acted to that one. Ian knows he said too much and continues with resignation. Which I know all feels small, but it allows for comedy to work among the core cast in a way it doesn't always. The comfy irritation of Ian po posing the torch in the Doctor's face, or Vicky observing that Barbara is 500 years old. And look how those tiny shoots grow across the story. Eventually we get to the Doctor eavesdropping, hearing himself being described and genuinely touched by it. We have the reveal that he always knew the Didonians looked human, that the Cochillian costume is exactly that, a costume. Perhaps best of all, we have Vicky never forgetting that while Bennett committed mass murder and genocide, the key thing for her is that he killed her father. Compare and contrast that with the way Nyssa basically stops minding that the Master is walking around wearing her dad's face. Wow. Well, 
uh, uh, there's no way I was going to say all of that, especially as some of that's for episode two. I think Andrew's just ruined it for my other half by giving away who the killer is, i.e. the only other person in the story. Uh, well, I mean, he did say he started, because there was quite a lot in his thing. Thing two was quite a lot of things, including the Doctor and Susan. I did say I like the dynamic between them. So I think I'm having that. I think that is part way towards my coronation. Uh, so uh, it's even Stevens, one apiece between Andrew and I. So uh, I've got half a cup of coffee and half a kingdom, which is which which I'll take. Uh, I don't need anybody to come to my rescue. So thanks for that. Uh, I'm, I'm probably going to watch the other episode now. You will have to return some other time. Um, so for now, uh, thanks for watching. And what? Well, that's the first time I've seen a Doctor Who episode where it was how you taught me to remember the neighbours' names. It was how I taught you to... Oh, to we, we have neighbours called... The only thing I'm doing in lockdown... <laughs> I'll tell... I'll t in fact... We're going to leave it on a... Because what happens is when I talk when the episode's not on, it means that I then have big gaps of the episode where I haven't got anything to say. So I'm going to leave you on a cliffhanger to explain that contribution. In Haydoke Towers, it's 20 past three in the morning. This plague is doing funny things, but do you know what? I couldn't sleep and I thought I'd watch Doctor Who and it's the first one I'm doing with my other half out of shot out of earshot too. Uh, so, um, I have been to sleep for five hours. Yeah, she's, but she's been asleep. She was working very hard. It is episode two of The Rescue. Please press play now. Um, this is the first Hartnell I've done for this project. So, much respect to the work of... Well, Bernard Lodge did the letters. He gets credited for the title sequence, but actually the, the signal howl around here was done in an experimental session. Uh, Norman Taylor was one of the technicians. He discovered how to do signal howl around. Um, ben Palmer was one of the other BBC technicians. He was the person in charge of the session doing the title sequence. I think... It, as an abstraction of travelling through time and space, it's a work of absolute magic uh, and might actually be my favourite title sequence in the whole um, Tom Baker's first one maybe, but it's pretty close. I like the, uh, it's clever isn't it, because the set, you know that big face on the uh, I remember my brother coming in and laughing at this bit because he said if they were really sharp they'd have cut the jacket um I don't like older brothers. They spoil things. Because <laughs> that hadn't occurred to me. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd found the, the sword slightly wobbly, but um, their sharpness hadn't... The sharpness not being dulled by uh, Savile Row <laughs> hadn't occurred to me. Um, uh, yeah, but I, the, the big face, it's like Aquilian's face, isn't it? So there's a sort of continuity of, of, of design for all, all the reliquary of the planet Dido, where as <laughs> the Doctor Who music, the Doctor Who years, oh, which is another thing about which I will wax lyrical at some point. 
uh, the Doctor Who years um, thing that Ed Stradling and Peter Crocker put together. They say that it comes from the planet Dido, where the where the dull music comes from, or something, which I would laugh at, but I'd then actually go, "Boy, well, I actually quite like a lot of Dido's songs." Um, but it's easy to be disparaging, isn't it? Um, but it's a it's a nice joke. It's a good joke. <laughs> um, so what was I talking about? Uh, and of course, yes, uh, Ray Barrett. I was very pleased that because they got him for the DVD, he'd moved back to Australia by the time the DVD was done, uh, and he died not long after. But uh, I think was it Damien Shanahan intrepidly went out and, and got an interview with him. So he, he, he chats on the DVD, which is absolutely lovely. Uh, always good to hear from the guest stars, uh, especially if somebody as illustrious as Barrett, who is one of Australia's finest sons. And of course, he was one of the many voices in Thunderbirds. He was a great voice man, uh, which I guess is why one of the reasons he was sort of thought of for the, for the dual role is that he was able to give a different vocal performance. Uh, yes, he's yes, he's passing himself off as, as somebody that's been sort of disabled in an accident, but it's all a sham. He's, he's an early... Because, unfortunately, people are still prone to, uh, uh, you know, make the disparaging observation that... Uh, you know, some disabled people are faking it for the benefits. Uh, so I'm afraid that only that only serves to underline that uh, appalling and overused slur. So that's that's why I can't go back to his own planet because the Department of Work and whoever it is would be on his case. He'd be having to do a PIP assessment. Poor old Bennett. They go. Well, we we find you're fit to. Uh, Disguise yourself as <laughs> as an alien creature. That's a great shot from behind uh, Sandy the Sand Creature in the uh, in the cave. Now, Sandy the Sand Creature is played by Tom Sheridan, who's also the voice of the uh, space captain who, um, who who we hear from but never see. And you feel a bit sorry because you hear them coming and they're coming to to, to rescue. But um, of course, as the story turns out, when they well, we don't know if they turn back because the the radio gets smashed. But uh, it's an it's an unrequited journey. I totally believed uh, that. That was very good. Um, it's a big old torch, isn't it? Is that a normal torch that they've augmented to make it a space torch? That's that's a legitimate thing to do. But of course. What we would do now is make it smaller, whereas in those days, to make something bigger made it more sort of space age, whereas actually what the future was all about was was condensing things um, from the length of television series to, you know, the size of our phones. That's a great, uh, that's a great shot of us being able to see Vicky from, from the inside. Oh, but this, and, uh, oh, and uh, she hurt herself doing this. Uh, uh, Jacqueline Hill. She yeah. Look, you can see it catches her. Um, which I, I mean, she sort of deserves it for killing Sandy the Sandbeast. I hate that bit. It's really sad. 
it's the death of an innocent creature. So it turns out it was a it was a bogus. Oh well, no, because he was going to get he was going to fall off the edge anyway. Poor old Sandy the Sand Beast. Yeah, so actually, Barbara, for all your travelling in space and time, you see an alien creature with an alien face and you think it's bad. Oh, it's horrible. I find that quite unbearable. That's really sad. And Maureen O'Brien does it very well. I think it's one of the most... A pointless deaths in the whole of Doctor Who and I don't mean in terms of the story it helps the story very much but it, it leaves a really sad and unpleasant uh, taste in the mouth that that's great, I, yeah I know I'm glad I chose Kakillian's mask, it's a brilliant mask uh, I don't quite know why your ceremonial robes of Dido need you to have spiky feet as well but uh, that's a great shot isn't it I like the spaceship. And Hartnell's great at this sort of not paternalistic, grand paternalistic stuff with Vicky. I'm, I mean, is I can't, I meant to look that up. Is Cocky Licking a, a regular sort of nickname that you give somebody? Because um, I'm not sure it's one that's aged particularly well. It's as as risque as Doctor Who ever gets. Cockalicky is a sort of soup, but cocky licking is a well, could be seen as a a risque pastime. Yeah, she's quite right. Yeah, it's actually quite nice seeing the TARDIS crew, who we know are the good guys. Um, you know, you can come in with good intentions and actually <laughs> you ruin somebody's day. Hartnell, I love the fact that Hartnell, because of course we, we forget we're only a year in and the Doctor has often been a figure of mystery and in fact aggravation. But here, having lost his granddaughter, Hartnell's so good in this, you can imagine him being a lovely granddad. Um and the way he dismisses them, I love the way he dismisses them, and sort of says, "I'll take care of this. I, I, I'll, I'll sort the young lady out." Yeah, he's. You can tell why he sort of, he cast a spell over. Children, which of course, which of course he did, even though he's set up as an anti-establishment figure, he does have that. I, th I think Hartnell gets. I've interviewed so many people who go, "Oh yeah," and of uh, and of course, you know, w w William Hartnell was was grumpy, and I think he, he he probably was. But I think often his doctor suffers as a result of that is that people think because he could be a bit grumpy that his doctor was always sort of grumpy. And not everybody I've interviewed said he was grumpy, but quite quite a few. Um, but his his doctor's actually often not grumpy at all and is is actually rather sweet. I also love his Rupert Bear trousers. I'd love to be bold enough to wear a pair of trousers like that. You, you probably wouldn't love me. <laughs> Looks could kill. <laughs> this podcast series would be over now. 
apparently I, I won't be getting a pair of William Hartnell trousers uh, for my lockdown Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh, yes, by the way, uh, this was recorded at Riverside Studios. Uh, just I wanted to I wanted to clear that up. Riverside Studio One. Uh, so I think my initial instinct was correct. Um, so the doctor's going to go and have chat with uh, Ray Barrett, who's going to say can't come in that was pre-recorded that bit you can tell because they use it so often I, I quite like the fact that the doctor doesn't take you can't come in for an answer and goes oh well, I'll, I'll just break the door down <laughs> break the door down then and of course Bennett doesn't say anything else uh, oh and it's dark outside now uh, which I rather like. I do like darkness really does... A, black and white really helps, though, doesn't it? Black and white's glorious. Uh, oh, go on, Barbara. You and Vicky... Oh, well, I suppose Vicky's got to... Don't you... She doesn't really have to... No, you don't really have to apologise. Barbara killed your pet. Yeah, but she nonetheless she killed your pet. I think you're allowed to be sad. Oh, you know that thing we watched the other day uh, out of half other shots with that young man in that American series about the lawyer. He's his son. Oh yes, you did say it's Yeah. Uh, we were watching Alfred Enoch, who is the son of William Russell, because William Russell's real name is Russell Enoch. Uh, who is having a marvellous career uh, in the UK and in the States. And I love the fact, and I know it's got really nothing to do with Doctor Who, but I do see, because it's the next generation of a Doctor Who actor, uh, I do see him sort of holding, hold, he does in a way hold the torch for Doctor Who. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure uh, it's only so long before he'll end up in Doctor Who himself. Look, I, I love the way Barbara just jabbed Ian. Oh, and his pocket squares come in useful. He's... Aren't they great, these two? Barbara and Ian have to get married, by the way. <laughs> He's got a big girder. So, yeah, there you go. That's what you tend to do when somebody says, you can't come into my bedroom. You kick the door in. Uh, but, of course, he's not there because it's a tape recording. But the angle, doesn't it? The angle really works. Now, I've got to try and work out what uh, clever threads and things Andrew is going to choose as his favourite thing. I mean, I'm liking the whole thing. Uh and I'm assuming that, yeah, that activates when you try and open the door. So it's quite a clever setup that he's got. Um, in order to sneak off and disguise himself as Kikillian. 
Um, oh, of course, because he's figured... His, his plan actually does make sense. I think I was... disparaging of it in part one but it does actually make sense it makes total sense um but i think it didn't originally i think they had to they had to work on it that his motives weren't clear oh look at that that was quite neat the the he's got a hole he's got a trap door in his floor uh which is why vicky who will not make the next miss marple uh why when kakillian went into bennett's bedroom uh, he, he he didn't come out again. You can't come in. <laughs> yeah, no, he's gone, Ian. Yep. So uh, yes, because he's got he's got the under. Oh, I like the moss on the cave walls. It's Raymond Cusick, isn't it, designing this? So, oh, this is a great set. I love, I love the smoke and the the atmosphere of this. Oh, and the music, of course, is Tristram Carey's music uh, that was also used in the Daleks. So, um, nice bit of sort of. I think it's quite nice to have a music that recalls a previous adventure, especially because it all sort of ties it in with this this early era. And it's a really good score. It's a really odd, discordant, disconcerting alien score. I wish I I wish I could describe music better. I'm not a musical person at all. So what are ah, now I could. Could I choose the score? He's not going to. Andrew's not going to choose the score, is he? He's going to choose something thematic. He's a writer. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a writer. I, sh I should be able to. I should be able to trust. This is that's a great shot. And look at all of the acting Hartnell is doing with his face. Not overacting, but what he's doing is 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 going. There's a lot going on underneath what his face is doing. He's a good actor. We un we underestimate Hartnell at our peril. Yeah, I the yeah the righteous, righteous indignation bubbling along there, Doctor. Yeah, you've you knew who it was, because you've seen the cast list and you know there's only one suspect. <laughs> That's okay. It's uh, he's a sort of. I mean, nowadays you'd call Bennett a sort of. He's a sort of gaslighter, isn't he? Because he was sort of making Vicky feel guilty and beholden and all sorts of other things, having Killian come in and bully her, uh, so that she's grateful to to Bennett, uh, and then and then serve as his advocate when. Yeah, and he's he's he commits genocide in order to cover himself up. He's a ba actually we don't think of him because it, because it's this story is sort of small stakes and in introducing Vicky. 
He kills all of the people from the Earth rocket and the entire population of Dido. He's as bad as, bad as a Doctor Who baddie gets. Uh, but also, his, his, work, his clear up rate's pretty good in the, uh, in, in the murderer's ledger. Uh, but also, there's a nice subtext there about, you know, it's easy to sell to Earth people, humans, us, to go, well, it was, we landed on this alien planet, and all these guys who looked, all these aliens, they're, they're bad. Oh, yeah, I forgot Hartnell gets quite, uh, he has a bit of a scrap. Uh, oh, yeah, and, and because that, that's, yeah, he, he turned the dial up. I'd never seen that quite so clearly before. He turns the dial up because it's, it's like a sort of energy weapon in the staff, isn't it? Uh, but look, this is, this is great. Oh, because he gets a fight in the Romans in the next story as well. But that's that's pretty good. Ah, that now these these are the survivors of Dido. Um, he thought he thought he killed you all, but he hasn't. Um, and uh, one of these I've noticed. I checked on IMDb. One of these is called John Stewart. There's a silent film actor called John Stewart had a great career and carried on acting till after this 1979. Uh, and for and IMDb used to have the the John the John Stewart who is one of these uh, was the same person definitely not and I've seen it argued in Doctor Who forums well it could just have makeup on because John Stewart would have been in his late sixties at this point perhaps yeah late sixties uh, not no way and you get people on forums go well it could be makeup no it's not I remember uh, there was a thing on a forum for years going that George because IMDb had got George Pastel's birth date wrong and they were good and somebody suggesting that no he would have been in his he might have been in his 80s in tomb of the cybermen and it was just makeup no uh but somebody i think has fought that battle because john stewart is now not credited at all uh on imdb uh, they, i think they've removed the credit rather than have to keep updating the film star john stewart's page to go he's not been in doctor who but some sources will still say that uh, that it's 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 that John Stewart, which it wasn't, uh, and you could, and I know, uh, equity doesn't allow two people to have the same name, but you could you could you could do walk on work and stuff without necessarily having an equity card, and I'm guessing that's what's happened here. But I've never found we've never found either of the the Didonians because John, I think they call I think the other one's called Colin Hughes. You try finding actors called John Stewart and Colin Hughes. That neither of those four words are uncommon, uh, especially if, uh, as we, you know, we think they might, at least one of them might not have been a member of Equity. We actually only found, well, we, I didn't. Chuck, I think, it was Stephen Griffiths, who's one of the handful of uh, Doctor Who uh, actor seekers, uh, found Tom Sheridan, the space captain, had, had died, I think, in 2009, 10, 11, 12, some less than 10 years ago. But we never, we yeah, for ages, we got no leads on on that actor either. Uh, so it's going to be nice to have Vicar. So I yes, I did. Th there is something to be said for doing Doctor Who chronologically because when Vicky comes in, it's great because you go, ah, oh, look forward to seeing what she'll be like, and she's great. Obviously, the next story I'm going to watch is. Uh, is going to be some random. Um, now I've got to. Um, 
I've got to choose two things that I like about this, whereas Andrew is going to choose three because he gets two per episode and one bonus one, whereas I only get the two. I only get the two per episode. Um, oh, it's a difficult one, uh, especially thinking what story beats uh, Andrew will choose. You might, I mean, you might choose the idea of Vi the fact that Vicky becomes the the companion and that the TARDIS crew of rescued. Ah, uh, well, I'm definitely going to choose. I think the bit where Hartnell sends. Oh, she's lovely, isn't she? She's got a lovely, cheerful face. Um, definitely going to. This is quite sad because this the the voice of Sandy the Sand Beast. Uh, neither of those men are in their late 60s. Sorry, IMDB, not IMDB. They've taken it off now. Um, but yeah, I've, the, the poor spaceship captain. Uh, d d would they have given up, do you think? Now that the ship's radio's been disabled? Or would they, would they turn up and get murdered by the people of Dido in revenge for the fact those two blokes... No wonder they're not speaking because they don't speak. <laughs> no wonder they're not talking to each other. They're the only two left. Um, uh, I am going to choose definitely uh, Hartnell's dismissal of Ian and Barbara. And, oh, didn't explain that. I'll explain the cliffhanger from the previous episode as we go into the cliffhanger from the next episode. This is a great shot, by the way. This was... Because um, the Romans and the Rescue were the same production block. So this was done in the filming, uh, which is great. The TARDIS falling off a cliff to lead into the next bit. It's lovely. I love that. Um, uh, uh, this, it was this. I, I explained to my other half um, how, how we would remember our new neighbours' names. Because about five doors down, uh, uh, and the only time we're going, I'm going out in lockdown is to do the shopping for our elderly neighbours five doors down. Because they're called... Ian and Barbara. <laughs> so, uh, and I said to my, I said to Jess, I said, it's very easy to remember their names. They've got the same names as Doctor Who's first two companions. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm definitely going to choose um, the bit where Hartnell, excuse me, um, sends Ian and Barbara out and I suppose the other bit because I think it's effective even though I don't I don't think I like it I think it might have to be that I was because I was gonna I think it would be cheeky but I, to, to choose the fact that Bennett is perhaps the most effective mass murderer in the history of Doctor Who um, but that only occurred to me when I was watching it and thinking of something funny to say um I think the sec the thing I will choose that I I don't like but I think is effective is the death of Sandy the Sand Beast. So Doctor Who sending out uh, Ian and Barbara and being so lovely uh, to Vicky uh, and the tragic death at the hands of the murderer Barbara Wright of Vicky's pet. What will Andrew have chosen? Let's find out. In episode two, I really like Barbara killing Sandy, the creature Vicky's befriended. 
Not because I'm a bloodthirsty animal murderer, but because it stops the outcome of this episode being a foregone conclusion. Everyone knows this is the new companion story, but that outcome seems a lot harder to reach when Barbara murdered Vicky's only friend. It's a <laughs> clever obstacle to add to the story. Thing two. Episode two sees the arrival of two mute Didonians, and I love everything about how this plays out. They reveal that they look human, to a which is a surprise to us. They reveal that they're alive, which is a shock to Bennett. And they're all dressed in white, like ghosts. They're the haunting remains of the crimes Bennett committed. He must have the single highest death rate of any villain in the show so far. And they haunt him to his death, silently, only ever moving forward. It's a big Jacques finale, a, a big Doctor Who courtroom scene, and they don't stop there. Once Vicky's gone, they smash up the rocket, making sure their civilization will remain unfound by the humans who follow. It's quietly anti-colonial, and it's brilliant. My overall big favourite thing about this episode must be one that you guessed. It's the full-blooded, do you want to come with me story. I mean, listen to the Doctor here. He said, my dear, why don't you come with us, hmm? We can travel anywhere and everywhere in that old box, as you call it, regardless of space and time. And if you like adventure, my dear, I can promise you an abundance of it. Apart from all that, well, you'll be among friends. Why isn't that memed and clipped endlessly? I have absolutely no idea. It's gorgeous. And the whole story is about Vicky's journey. Feels like a big influence uh, on Russell T. Davis's Rose. We start in the middle of Vicky's life, a life from which she clearly needs rescuing. Take away the sci-fi trappings and it's a girl imprisoned by her wicked stepfather. Who better to turn to than school teachers and the local doctor? Come the end, she can take the rescue ship home or she can travel with the doctor. She's not stuck uh, having to hitch a lift. One choice is safe, though perhaps it's the kind of choice that one makes if they're scared and scarred. But instead she chooses, she chooses to grow past her recent nightmare and become an adventurer. What a marvellous way to become the first truly willing companion. Oh, he was a good choice of guest, wasn't he? I knew he would be. Uh, he, I, I was quite moved by his, uh, his, his uh, quotation of the Doctor's words, and he's quite right. Uh, it's not. It's never quoted that uh, big speech that he gives to Vicky, but it it's a sort of sums up Doctor Who. Um, and thanks to Andrew for shedding. That's that's been a surprise to this, you see, because I, you know, I hope it's diverting and that you feel like you're you've come round and we're putting our feet up and shooting the shizzle and talking about Doctor Who. I'm doing most of the talking. Sorry. Um, but actually, the, the other people, the people who set the challenge, who've chosen the story, um, the perspectives that they bring in, uh, partially because of just who they are, but also, as Andrew demonstrates, because of his profession and because of his insights and is able to sort of categorise uh, how scripts, you know, what scripts do and how they work and to uh, uh, bring his own experiences to bear on his, on how he takes the episode. Uh, and how he, he interprets it, and how it's filtered through his experience and his profession and his skills. That's, to me, been a real... It's been really exciting for, for me, and I, I hope as much for you, to hear the, you know, the reasons that these other people have. I really enjoyed listening to what Andrew said. He... Sometimes I do tend to ask the guest to sort of point out where they are online and things like that. Uh, Ellard Ent, at Ellard Ent on Twitter is his Twitter handle. He's currently 
in charge of a sci-fi children's series being filmed in Belfast as we speak for the BBC, which, uh, if his scripts are anything like as, as good as his forensic examination of other people's, uh, and he's done loads of script editing work, he's been working on a comedy here with a comedian called Sophie Willen, uh, who I've worked with, who's absolutely brilliant, and her, she's done a pilot, and that's going to series, and Andrew's been working on that. So check out his work. I hope his contribution to this has inspired you to check out his stuff, because uh, that will be another good thing that has happened as a result of Doctor Who and all of our experience with it. I hope, if nothing else, the rescue has rescued half an hour of your life that otherwise would have been slightly duller. That's all I aim for, to be better than dull. <laughs> or better than not as dull as full-on dull. So um, thanks for joining me. Uh, do attend one of the next ones of these. But let's uh, let's go all off uh, for another journey and then we'll reconvene where here on my sofa where, remember, you're amongst friends. Ta-ta. Thanks for listening to Happy Times and Places with me, Toby Haydock. My special guest was Andrew Ellard. Sincere thanks to this episode's featured patrons, Rob Leonard, Andy Case, James Gould, David Matthewman, John Rivers, Rich Wiggins, Michael Williams and Stephen White. The music for this podcast is by Dave Gates and the artwork by Dylan Patterson. Don't forget to subscribe and to please rate this five stars wherever you happen to pick up your podcasts. That sort of thing really does help. Oh, and subscribe to my YouTube channel too. You can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke or make a one-off donation at ko forward slash Toby Haydoke. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>